in a series right now, a short series entitled Hopes and Fears. Let me pray for us, and I will share with you a little bit of what God's put upon my heart, given uh, all the things that have been going on in this Christmas season. Lord, my prayer this evening, in the midst of all my friends here, is that the words of all of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would truly be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I pray in your name. Amen. I'm going to start by sharing with you a story. How many of you were really rude and mean to your friends in college and you did pranks all the time? Yes. If you were ever that student, some of you are bringing back memories of the pranks that you used to pull. Um, There was all sorts of crazy stuff. Some of the worst ones that happened when I was in college, I was at a Christian college, by the way, too, so these pranks were kind of like that added extra um, emphasis, but uh, we actually took somebody's car, put it up on blocks in the middle of the quad, took off her wheels, and rolled her wheels around to each and every one of our classes that we were at. Um, somebody put some milk inside of the rafters of my uh, dorm, and I couldn't find it for three months. That I had that smell. One of my favorite pranks that ever happened was um, somebody took 10, I think, alarm clocks. I think it was about 10. Set them at their highest volume to go off one-hour spaces the night before finals and hid them in his friend's room. And so, like, at 1 o'clock in the morning, this alarm would go off. And then at 2 o'clock in the morning, the alarm would go off. So all sorts of things. I want to share with you a little bit of the antics that two of my friends, Ed and Jeremy, went through that illustrate a little bit of this problem that I'm going to uh, attempt to address between religion and violence. And hopefully it'll make sense in in a bit. We were sitting at the lunch table very innocently having lunch together, and Ed accidentally knocks over a glass of water that spills across the table and then into Jeremy's lap. Innocent enough, but nonetheless, the two of them already have a little bit of a friendly, contentious relationship. They're always doing these little things to one another. So not only is this an accident, but this is an invitation for Jeremy now that the game is on. So he cleans himself up as best as he can, and as he goes and cleans himself up, he brings back a pitcher of water, which we all think is to refill the cup. But instead of refilling the cup for Ed, he trips, air quotes, pours this pitcher of water all down the face and the front of Ed, to which we all fall out in hysterics and laughing. Well, this is not the end of the war, clearly. Later on that day, it's on. It's totally on. Later on that day, as Jeremy is heading back towards the dorm room, Ed has somehow found his way up on the roof of the dorm. And after everything has been cleaned up and Jeremy is about ready to head to class, I think he actually had something special to go to. I don't remember all the fine details. He's on the roof with the hose, kinked so it's not going. And as soon as Jeremy walks out of the dorm room, releases all of that pressure, and then just drenches him as he's on his way to whatever is special event. Tit for tat. Later that night, (laughs) I'm dead asleep, and about two o'clock in the morning, I hear huge rambunctious noises, and we were in a very small dorm room, and so the walls are thin, and everything, you know, reverberates throughout And I don't remember exactly what I heard. I just remember hearing commotion and loud screaming. That sounds like it came from a male, but was really high-pitched screaming. 
And I was too tired that night to figure out whatever was going on, so I just laid in bed, got up the next morning, walk over to see whatever the chaos was. Ed is huddled in the corner of his room, shivering in the morning. Still, he hasn't fixed himself. Apparently, what had happened, Jeremy walks into his room with a five-gallon bucket of ice water at two in the morning and dumps this entire ice bucket of water on Ed in his bed. So the entire bed is drenched, he is drenched, and it's freezing cold water. And that seemed to have been like the ultimate capstone of this. Have you ever participated in anything like this? Not quite like that. This was pretty bad. And this rivalry, of course, continued on. That story for me illustrates, in a very humorous and light way, what I think is possibly happening when it comes to the challenges that we are all facing regarding a very contentious and very difficult and complicated issue surrounding religion and violence. And given all the news that has been happening recently, and especially the news that has happened most recently, even again this week, what I'd like to do in a very, very short period of time is try to talk through some philosophy, some theology, some ways of thinking about this particular issue. Spark Church is, for all practical purposes, a religious institution. We are a religious body. We participate in religious activities. And if you're interested in knowing a little bit more about what we mean by the word religion, about a year and a half ago, we did this series called, You Keep Using That Word, I Do Not Think It Means What You Think It Means. And in, <laughs> and in that series, I tackle this word religion, um, and it'll give you a little bit of a better sense of what we think about religion when we use the word. Religion and violence, of course, have been theorized for thousands of years. So there's no way that I'm going to attempt, uh, no way that I'm going to accomplish satisfying all of the nuances and all the intricacies of this particular issue. The reason why this image is up is because a lot of people have suggested that sports is itself a religious activity that assuages violence. It's actually an act of violence, and rather than going to war with one another, we play sports with one another. It all falls into game theory. So philosophers and theologians have leveraged that. Other philosophers and theologians have suggested that if you're going to talk about religion being the cause of violence, we also have to talk about the religion being the cause of great good in this world. And so you'll see pictures here, two pictures. One of them is a group of Christians that are protecting a group of Muslims as they pray during uh, pray in peace during the Egyptian revolution. And the bottom picture is a group of Muslims uh, protecting Christians in Egypt during mass. And so those are some other aspects. So there's a lot of things to talk about. Two of my favorite things to do, one is to learn and to grow along with friends, to study together. And the second thing is pushing hard on issues and discovering more and learning together. Spark has been that place where we can do that together with issues like this. And so tonight what I'd like to do is just dive in one direction on this topic and I hope that it does, and I, I know we joke about this, but it's really true for us. We hope that it really sparks conversation and thought and philosophy and theology and consideration for how we are to act and to behave in this world. So that's what we're going to do tonight regarding this particular topic. And I'm going to lean almost 100% on a gentleman by the name of Rene Girard. 
In the midst of all of the news that has been happening this last week, another piece of news that happened close to home here at Stanford is uh, the passing away of this great French philosopher, René Girard. You can read his curriculum vitae online. He's a prolific author. He's an historian. He's a literary critic. Uh, He's a social scientist, professor of anthropological philosophy. Uh, He's a member of the French Academy. I don't speak a lick of French, so I won't even pretend to pronounce that, but he's a member of the French Academy, a very prestigious philosophical academy. Um, In 1981, he became the Andrew B. Hammond Professor of French Language, Literature, and Civilization right here in Stanford University. He retired a couple years ago, and November 4th, he passed away. Some people have even suggested that his work is so profound and prolific that he's been entitled by some of his peers as the Darwin of the Human Sciences. And you can see, of course, when you go on Amazon and take a look at his books, very, very prolific writes extensively about this issue, has studied extensively about this issue, and what I'd like to share with you is my best understanding of his work and what that really means for our current engagement with the issue of violence that we see, the conflation of violence in religion, and what are we to do about this? How are you and I honestly to respond or to live with all of these big issues every day, as we walk out these these doors, as we go to our parenting, to our marriages, to our workplaces, when we go to those places? Is there anything that we can learn from this that is immediately applicable to those relationships? And I think there are, and I'll do my best to try to uh, share some of that. There are three main points from Gerard's philosophy and his writing. The first is that violence ultimately begins with desire. Violence ultimately begins with desire. The most primal root for the beginning of violence against another person begins with desire. And the way that he would define desire is that it it arises from insecurity, a lack of being. And I'll explain a little bit more of these. The second piece is what I will call mirroring because he uses the word mimetic, It is the idea that as we express our desire, we are actually imitating the desire of another person. So we have this deep longing from insecurity, a lack of being, that causes us to then reach and want for things. And that wanting, that desire, is actually reflective of the people that we see around us. And ultimately what we want, when we see it in other people, When we want that, it causes conflict and scarcity. Now, that's a key word. If you missed Danielle's message two weeks ago, it'll be really critical for you to hear her message that she shared because she talked a lot about scarcity and how that influences the way we see the world. And the last is, this ultimately culminates in what he would call, and what many of us have called, a scapegoat. In order for reconciliation to happen, through this growing conflict and growing scarcity, one guilty victim is identified and then eliminated, sacrificed. And once that happens, there is a reconciliation of the conflict and a restoration of the unity of the people. Now, these are three very simple concepts that come from his extensive work. And again, this is just the beginnings of the conversations that we're going to have. First, desire, stemming from insecurity. 
which I think is a brilliant insight into a lot of the conversations that many of us have. How many of us are continually struggling to ask the question, the simple question that is very easy to ask but difficult to answer, who am I? Who am I starts very early on with young children as they begin to grow and individuate. When they say to you, no, I want to do it on my own. They are starting to develop a sense of individuation, a sense of identity. When a teenager says, would you just leave me alone? You're kind of getting in my space here. How many of you have teenagers that have experienced that push away? This is all part of the question and the growth of identity. When you're at work, whatever business that you're in, and you want to know that your boss or your coworkers have seen what you've done is good and valuable and contributes to the company, to the business, to the institution, whatever it is, this is all part of being affirmed in your being, in your identity. But if we're honest with ourselves, all of those things, all of those stretchings don't ultimately satisfy Throughout our entire lives, we're constantly struggling and striving to find some sort of identity, find some sort of sense of being. And one of the things that I learned very early on from pastors and teachers teaching about this subject is most of the dysfunctions that all of us face and all of us perpetuate in this world, most of it, virtually all of it, stems from one word, insecurity. Not knowing who we are trying to figure out who we are, trying to come to some sort of identity of being. And this is exactly Gerard's point. This is the beginning, the very first stage of what will eventually turn into violence. <clears throat> to describe the mimetic or the reflecting or the mirroring sense of wanting, all you have to do is take a look at children and watch, I want what they have. Oh, if they do that, then I want that. Well, if they get to go there, then I want to go there. This is what's known as mirroring, what he calls mimetic want or desire. The way in which we fulfill our sense of being, the way in which we fulfill our sense of identity is to see what somebody else has, to see what somebody else is doing, to see what somebody else has accomplished, and to want that for ourselves. Does this sound familiar to anybody? And as you begin to want and reach and desire that other thing that somebody else has, that creates conflict. Because the resources for that to happen are scarce, or the ability to even accomplish that is scarce. There's only so much money. There's almost only so much power. There's only so much reputation to go around. And so as we begin to strive for one another, it goes back to game theory. The idea is that I now need to grab what you have, power, prestige, reputation, whatever that is, which then decreases whatever it is that you have. And this is what then creates the conflict. This is exactly what happens between my friend. This is my friends Ed and Jeremy, desire, therefore, according to Gerard's work, begins to replicate itself. You have now reached for what I'm reaching for. Now I watch you reach for that. And now I'm going to reach for the exact same thing. Only I'm going to do it better 
and I'm going to do it harsher, and I'm going to do it more effectively than the other person. Part of the challenge of this particular message is some of the, some of the videos and the rhetoric that we have seen from religious people and politicians in our current conversation. And when I read more about Gerard's work, the idea that we're constantly reaching and wanting to do the very same thing that has been done to us, it falls in line exactly with what I hear. When you hear a religious person or a religious leader or a politician say, we're going to do to them what they've done to us, this is exactly the conflict that Gerard is talking about. And again, this sounds familiar from the story of my friends, Ed and Jeremy. You did this to me, I am now going to do this to you, which means I'm now going to do this back to you, etc., etc., etc. The conflict continues. Then last, the scapegoat. As this conflict between people that are in relationship continue, the only way this conflict is going to be resolved is to find a guilty party, somebody who owns this, somebody who, who is going to bear all of the weight of the guilt of whatever this conflict, whatever this scarcity, whatever this wanting and grabbing and desiring is going to be. We must find that person, that thing, that object, and get rid of it. Sacrifice it. And this, Gerard would say, is where we begin to see the development of the rites and the rituals of sacrifice, of giving up something that is guilty for causing whatever this conflict is. And if we can get rid of that, then we will be reconciled. That all of the conflict that we have been having together will suddenly come to peace. And what's really critical about this particular point from Gerard, if you take a look at philosophy and theology and the myths that have emerged throughout history, there's a really key point. That person, that goat, that thing, whatever it is that we sacrifice, that we get rid of, we see as 100% guilty. We see as the prime guilty party for causing all of this to happen. Now, if you stop for a moment and think about that stream of philosophy and pair it with some of the rhetoric that we hear, this is exactly what is happening. And oftentimes when you hear about people saying, well, do unto others before they do unto you. And the reality is there's nothing that I hold that is of responsibility. It is 100% them that is responsible for all of this. You're falling right in line once again with Gerard's philosophy. Are you tracking so far? And it is this perpetual sense, desire, reach. I don't have an identity, so I must reach for what you have. And the more and more that I reach, the more and more conflict emerges. And eventually, the culmination of that conflict must result in somebody being eliminated in order for this to come to resolution. And whoever that is, who, whatever that is, that thing or that person is 100% guilty.
we've got a problem. Because this has been happening for a long, long time. And philosophers and theologians have been wrestling with how in the world do you come into this system? If Gerard is right, how do you get in this? Stop it from happening. Change the story. Turn it on its head. Try to get some sort of different direction to go. Especially since, as we've talked about before, every single one of us in this room still feel that sense of insecurity. Still feel that sense of desire. Still feel that sense of, I gotta have something else to help bring some sense of peace to my lack of sense of being. How do you do that? Gerard, in his philosophical journey, came across a story early on in his career, but as he was studying this, it became more and more present. That thousands of years ago, there were some stories that were being told that looked a lot like the mythical stories that were told by other cults and other religions. But these stories, through desire, through conflict of scarce resources, and then through the sacrifice of a scapegoat, started taking different forms. And instead of the scapegoat being guilty, the scapegoat was actually innocent. If you start with these stories, like Cain and Abel, the story was again desire, wanting some sort of affirmation from the Lord, not getting it, but seeing that somebody else gets it. Wanting it, desiring it, grabbing for it, and ultimately sacrificing it because it must have been his problem. The, here's, the, here's the rub of the story, though. Is Abel actually guilty? The answer is no. It's the slaughtering of an innocent. Same with Joseph. The idea that here's a, a son of a beloved father, and he gets all the prestige, and what do the other brothers want? The exact same thing that he wants, scarcity of resources. We're not getting the highest accolades and attention from our father. And so we're going to, there's the conflict, and that conflict continually rises for scarce resources, ultimately ending in the sacrifice, the getting rid of the scapegoat, which in this story is Joseph. Job is also a victim of this, uh, this system, of this violence. But he himself, the scriptures tell us, is innocent. And then later on in this story, in this grand narrative that we've been telling from Genesis all the way through the story, you probably know where I'm going with this. There's another conflict. A desire for being. A sense of identity. To know who we are and how we live in this world. There's scarce resources. There's only going to be one real ultimate power here but somebody's got to go. And that somebody, when he goes, will hopefully make everything better, but the key thing about this story is that this person is 100% innocent. And what Gerard would say is, as these stories continue, uh, as you compare all of these myths, as you compare all of these historical outworkings of his philosophy, it is the Christian story founded in the Judeo-Hebraic historical 
storytelling of the Old Testament, what we would call the Hebrew Scriptures, that begins to flip this entire system on its head and say, if that's the case, if this person is innocent, not guilty, then the slaughtering of an innocent person reconciles not just the conflict that exists between us, but the conflict for everybody. And in the culmination of Jesus, and Hebrews fleshes this out, and you can see this more worked out all throughout the New Testament, in the slaughtering of this one individual, the New Testament, what Gerard would say, is declaring that the end of violence can actually happen because by the slaughtering of this individual, it reverses this trend. I mean, think about these three particular pieces of the puzzle. Every single one of us struggle with this, and we scapegoat, we mirror one another, we have these deep desires that are constantly stretching for one another. And if Gerard is right, and this Christian story comes on this scene and flips it on its head, then for those of you who have been wrestling with the question, does religion create violence? If Gerard is right, then religion doesn't cause violence, but rather the rituals and beliefs of religion, the worship of this sacrificed innocent human being, emerge out of the violence to ultimately defeat it. In other words, religion doesn't make way for violence, but the very core sense of our desire, the very beginnings of violence within the very depths of our soul, emerge over time in religious rites, rituals, sacrifices, faith, belief systems that ultimately defeat the violence that has brought us to this place. It's a complete flip on its head. Now, if you buy into this story and understand that violence has been completely done away with in Jesus, you would ask the question, well, why are Christians so violent? (laughs) Why do Christians still act and behave this way? Rene Girard responds, this was a report from Religion News Services uh, by James Bernard Murphy, who writes, of course, Christians themselves have notoriously participated in scapegoat persecution of Jews and heretics, etc. So Girard has conceded that many, if not most actual Christians, and here's the key point, have failed to grasp what he takes to be the central teaching of Christianity, that violence has ultimately been done away with in this one scapegoat in the person of Jesus. And so my encouragement and challenge, hopefully to all of us, is to actually embrace the real story. And when you hear rhetoric that seems, that even comes from people who claim to love Jesus and follow Jesus, and only perpetuates the cycle of violence, I hope something within us is challenged to say, but wait a second, that mimetic desire, that reflecting, that going back and forth, doing what you do, doing unto you before you do to me, that has been done away with in Jesus. That has been done away with in the sacrifice of this ultimately innocent scapegoat. And for us to then take up the way that Jesus has called us to live into this world that lives on the platform that violence is done. Now, really quickly, how does this all work? When I say the word violence, I can imagine that the big connotations that come to our minds are guns, blood, bombs, wars. 
But let me ask you this question. How many of you have said an unkind word? How many of us have pushed somebody aside? How many of us have completely dismissed another individual? How many of us have said horrible, mean, nasty things about another? These are all evidences of the exact same stream of us trying to figure out who we are, striving for scarce resources, and then scapegoating that upon another person. If you take the whole issues of money, power, sex, desire, all of us still wrestle and struggle with this being and this sense of identity. And for us to then take this Jesus story and to hear him say, your identity is found in knowing him, not in acquiring the scarce resources of another. Your identity, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one and only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Being, identity, the sense of security that we have, according to this Christian story, is found in the person of Jesus. There is no sense that we have to constantly reach and strive and demolish other people in our wake in order for us to find our identity because this story says our identity is found in this person of Jesus. This, by the way, is what I think is the reason why whenever there's tragedy that happens, we say things like, we will not be changed. We will not be fearful. One of the ways to defeat the violence and the fearfulness that exists is to re-identify yourself as to who you are. There's some controversy that's going around. Some of you might have heard the news headlines that some people are suggesting, like, stop praying. Do something about this. And there's been some emails back and forth and blogs and Facebook posts about this. I'd just like to share that I think according to this philosophical framework that Gerard would say, the reason why we pray is not because we think that necessarily it's going to be the fix for everything that's happening. We pray because it grounds us once again in who we are. We refuse to become somebody different. Our identities, our sense of being, the desire to know who we are is grounded in our sense of identity with the living God of this universe. And by grounding us once again in that identity, we can stop that cycle of violence. This is quote by MLK has been referenced in regards to Gerard's work. The choice is not between violence and nonviolence, but between nonviolence and non-existence. In other words, if we let violence take us, if we let that desire continue to perpetuate itself, we don't actually get to a sense of being we actually don't get to a sense of identity. We lose it. And so prayer, identity, all of that stuff, whenever bad things happen, we reground ourselves in our sense of identity of who we are. The mirror, the reflection, what are some of the things that we can learn from mimetic desire, according to Girard, that we reflect, I see you do this thing, I'm going to do this thing. He says this, choose your enemies carefully because you will become like them. That quote in and of itself ought to cause us to just pause and consider. When we start pointing fingers at whoever is the evil person, and then I, I watch the news reports and I read the articles, I'm like, you sound just like the people you're pointing your fingers at. It sounds exactly the same. Thus, perpetuating the cycle of violence. And then regarding our scapegoat. Once again, it is Jesus who commissions us and challenges us. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life 
one's friend. And to model after Jesus that I will be the one, I will sacrifice whatever pride, whatever insecurity, whatever it is that I have for the sake of another. And by doing that, we perpetuate not violence, but we, we perpetuate love. And all of that culminating, culminating in your faith, your discipleship, your willingness to live the way that Jesus lived, to see in him and his life and in his coming to this earth the complete reversal of the cycle of violence and a complete demolishment of what Gerard's philosophical framework has suggested, that in Jesus, the ultimate scapegoat who is the innocent victim, all violence has ultimately been done away with. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And as I was looking through the lyrics of this song, it's just a very upbeat, it's got some power to it, there's a lot of energy to this song, and uh, I thought it was appropriate for us in reflection to this. For we want our Emmanuel, our God with us, to come and to be with us and to scatter the darkness and the night and all of the challenges that we face. And my hope is that as we sing this song, it's a beautiful Christmas song, uh, that we will take upon ourselves once again this beautiful message that in Jesus all of this has been done away with. So we're asking him to come even more. Come and be present in our lives. Come and be present in this world. Come and be present in our hearts so that if there's anything within me, fear, scarcity, or even that sense of desire that is rising up within me that is hoping and wishing and maybe pushing to subdue or scapegoat another person, come, come Emmanuel, God with us, come be here. And still my fears, still my desires, still whatever it is that's in my heart, that wants to perpetuate this violence that we see amongst us. So that's what I hope happens as we sing this song. So let's close with this. God, thank you for our time together. We bless you uh, for this group of people that is willing to just wrestle uh, with these difficult and challenging philosophical and theological issues. And I pray that something of what we've studied and um, heard tonight would maybe shift us once again to becoming the kind of Christ followers that you desire us to be in this dark, gloomy, and violent world. And as we do, and as you come, may all of that desire and violence be fundamentally done away with and satisfied ultimately in you. I pray in your name. Amen.